Ahoy authors! You're listening to The Writership Podcast, a show focused on helping indie authors master self-editing skills. So come aboard and get ready to find the treasure in your manuscript with hosts Leslie Watts and Clark Chamberlain. Welcome to episode 118 of The Writership Podcast. Today, we're talking about genre. I'm Leslie Watts, here with C. Stephen Manley, author of the Paragons Trilogy, the Brace Cordova Space Opera Series, and host of the Story Shots podcast. To learn more about this podcast, visit writership.com slash podcast. As you know, the podcast is sponsored by Jim Kukrell from the Author Marketing Club. We all know that books with lots of high-quality reviews sell more copies. With that in mind, Jim just launched his new service for authors called Happy Book Reviews. HappyBookReviews.com is a service where Jim hopes to make you and your book happy with good quality reviews. So go check out the options at www.HappyBookReviews.com and give your book a reason to smile because, come on, nobody likes a sad book. That's just heartbreaking. Oh, it is heartbreaking. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, welcome. Thank you. It's fun to be here. I just, Long time listener, Leslie. I know. <laughs> I just realized I didn't ask you how you want me to call you. On oh, the, call me Chuck because that's what the C stands for. Okay. All right. So welcome, Chuck. It's so great to have you. You're well, a you. longtime listener of the podcast and you've <laughs> had your submissions reviewed on the podcast. A couple and, of times. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And you're the host of the Story Shots podcast, which is amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you. So that's one where you you just kind of talk about. It is it is me running my mouth about writing and, and writer's lifestyle and just really anything that uh, I think people who are new to the craft and stuff would find beneficial. So yeah, it's just me and a mic and, and, and me listening to myself talk. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. <laughs> well, but you know, what I like about it is that it's real. You're talking from long time experience and it's oh, yeah. very accessible. Like you're not, it's not pedantic. Like you must do this, blah, blah, blah. You know, yeah. it's very, um, it's very approachable and you have a great, casual style. I really enjoy it. Well, thank you. I think the only thing that writers have to do is write. I mean, that's (laughs) everything else is kind of, you know, flexible. Right, right. Yes. So if you want to find out more about Chuck and his podcast and books, you can find him at www.cstevenmanley.net. That's C-S-T-E-V-E-N. M-A-N-L-E-Y dot net. That is correct. A lot of people want to throw that P-H in there for, uh, for Stephen. Yeah. I guess that guy, that keen guy sort of messed it up for the rest of us. Yeah, but you you uh, share the V with Stephen Pressfield, so. Hey, you know I never thought of it that way. Thank you. That is a, that is, that, that makes up for it. Absolutely. He's pretty awesome. He is kind of awesome, yeah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Okay, so before we jump into the quote, I want to remind everyone that we um, we have the lovely Google spreadsheet that Liz prepared with all the Writership Podcast episodes, and it includes the genre, topics discussed, etc. And so you can gain access to that at writership.com slash index. 
And another plug for the show notes because I'm adding more and more and more things and I've got some ideas about um, possible extra recordings thanks to a recommendation from Chuck, suggestion from Chuck. So um, so be sure and check out the show notes because there will be extra goodies there. You can find the, the show notes at writership.com slash episodes. So... Chuck, do you have a quote for us this week? Uh, I guess I do. I have a quote from Robert McKee. Uh, it goes, story is about principles, not rules. A rule, say, excuse me, a rule says you must do it this way. A principle says this works and has through all remembered time. The difference is crucial. Your work needn't be modeled after the well-made play. Rather, it must be well-made within the principles that shape our art. Anxious, inexperienced writers often obey rules. Rebellious, unschooled writers break rules. Artists master the form. Story is about the eternal, universal forms and not formulas. Yes. <laughs> yes, that is it. And I, you know, and that kind of that sort of resonates with me in a, in a lot of ways because I've always been. I, I love the fact that words and prose are like clay. You know, you can you can kind of mold them and shape them and twist them in a lot of different ways. And a lot of people have have played with the rules of grammar and, and, and pacing and things like that. But I think in order to do that effectively, you've got to know the rules before you start breaking them and shaping them. Because uh, if you look at it in terms of architecture, no matter how avant-garde or groundbreaking a piece of, of architecture or a building is, it has to have a solid foundation. And if you understand story structure, grammar, prose, pacing, all that stuff, these are going to be the foundation of your story. And then you can do all the experimental stuff on top of that. But you have to kind of understand the basics before you can get too crazy with the with the art, as it were. So, yeah, I like that quote. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, uh, I was just listening to an episode of the Story Grid podcast uh, yesterday, I think. And Sean Coyne was talking about how, you know, waiting for, waiting for Godot, right? It's on, on the surface, it's somebody waiting for someone who never shows up, right? I mean, it's, it's very avant-garde, but, but the author understood story structure very clearly. Yes. And it's still in there and it works because, you know, because the author whose name escapes me right now for some reason, right. um, but the, but the author understood form and, and that difference between form and formula is something that I've, I've struggled with. I've struggled for a while to come up with a way to explain it. And right. I, and yes, just yesterday, I came up with something really great, and I'm going to share it today. So uh, that's your little um, foreshadowing <laughs> for later. Another another great technique. Right? <laughs> right. So, okay, so let's get to the submission. We have today a short story called The Highwaymen by Jacob Oakley. He's calling it a fantasy the word count is 3,040. Again, it's a short story. And there's a little um, violence 
in this one. So if that is not your thing, you might want to give this one a miss. Uh, and it's based on, you'll probably recognize, the poem, The Highwaymen. And Chuck is going to read the submission for today. Yeah, everybody buckle up. Here we go. All right. <clears throat> the Highwaymen by Jacob Oakley. Wesley, the highwayman, stood in the middle of the cobbled road. In its age, two furrows ran parallel on each side of the man. A black mask concealed most of his face. The butt of a single-shot pistol twinkled on his right hip, and a worn rapier nested against his left side. A hundred yards ahead of him, the road curved and ran between two lavender-banked hills. He waited. A large pothole lurked in the center of the road at the curve. Inside the hole sat a small man with a grappling hook. As the carriage approached, his teeth chattered from the concussions. He steeled his nerves and rotated the battered hook in his hands. The highwayman must be daft to think this will work, he thought, before he had but he's never failed before. The spacious carriage rounded the bin. It barely fit on the road. Each oaken door held a gold inlay of a falcon. Two men in red jackets sat at the front. One man held the reins to a pair of chestnut stallions while the other held a large crossbow. Their eyes widened when they saw the highwayman standing in the path, but by the time they saw him, it was too late. The chain reached its end. A loud crack rent the air as the grappling hook ripped off the front axle of the carriage. The driver flew forward and landed, landed head first onto the stone. He didn't move. The horses reared five yards in front of Wesley, but they made no move to pull the broken carriage. The crossbowman leveled his weapon at the highwayman. Wesley moved faster. He stepped forward, bringing the horse between him and the guard. There was a thump, and the stallion screamed as the bolt dug into its shoulder. "'What's going on out there?' yelled a woman from inside the carriage. "'Nothing, madam,' said the highwayman as he lunged from behind the horse." The guard foolishly decided to reload the crossbow instead of drawing his sword. While the crossbowman fumbled with the bolt, Wesley lunged forward and slashed his throat. Dark crimson poured from his neck and down his red jacket. The crossbow fell from his hand as he clasped at the gash. His eyes bulged. He could only gurgle as he attempted an oath of revenge. He died before his body hit the ground. The highwayman had flicked the blood from his rapier, placed it in his scabbard, and opened the carriage door before the crossbowman tumbled to the earth. The woman inside saw him and screamed. Wesley waited patiently until her hysterics ceased. Duchess Guinevere, he beamed. It's been years. I trust you remember the routine. She stared at him blankly for a few moments. Her chest heaved and she let out a heavy sigh. She untied a heavy coin purse from her scarlet dress and tossed it to the highwayman. My dear, he chided. We know that's not all. Guinevere pulled the ruby and gold comb from her hair. Her auburn curls fell in tresses down to her shoulders, wafting a scent of autumn flowers towards Wesley. As the Duchess reached out to give the comb, the highwayman gently grasped her fingers and placed a smooth kiss on the back of her hand. She blushed visibly beneath her layers of makeup. Wesley ran a finger along the side of her face and leaned toward her. She closed her eyes, puckered her lips, and leaned closer. With a snap, Wesley pulled off her golden necklace. His eyes popped open, her eyes popped open in shock, and a flicker of disappointment shot across her face as she realized the kiss was not coming. Guinevere's gaze rolled across the highwoman. He noticed the look in her eyes, released her hand, and stepped away. The man in the pothole ran up to Wesley and said, The next patrol will be here in a few minutes. We need to move. The highwayman whistled, and two black chargers ran to them from behind a hill. He gracefully pulled himself onto the larger of the two, while his stout companion bumbled his way onto the other. Wesley turned to the Duchess and said, Guinevere, please stay in the cart. 
We've made a bit of a mess outside, and a flower such as, your shell, such as yourself should not be blemished by seeing such things. A patrol will be along shortly to take care of you. With that, he nudged the carriage door closed with his foot and rode south on the road. Guinevere slumped back in her seat and thought, he's always so kind and considerate. It's a shame about the gold, but my husband will make things right. If only my husband had such a passion for life as the highwayman, and he always smells so nice and his touch is so soft. With those thoughts, she daydreamed until the next patrol of guards arrived and roused her from her fantasies. By the time she told them what had happened, blushing and smiling all the while, the highwayman was long gone and the sun was starting to set. The moon slowly sailed across the sky like a ghostly galleon. It illuminated the inn and Tim the ostler as he hobbled from the stable to the well at the, center's court, at the courtyard's center. A large burn covered much of his face and only a jagged hole remained of his left nostril. Ten years earlier, a mob of angry peasants burned down the old stable with him inside. A dying horse fell on him, snapping his leg, but the poor creature's corpse kept him alive. He stayed because he had nowhere else to go and hoped that one day he would woo Bess, the innkeeper's daughter, and become the owner of the inn. A light fog crept through the ruins of the abandoned monastery behind the stable. The structure had been renovated from one of the old chapels, which was burned in another peasant revolt, then remade into a stable, destroyed again, and then rebuilt. The innkeeper incurred a large debt rebuilding his establishment. Debt collectors often slithered through the grounds, but he paid them enough to keep the ownership. Bess sat plaiting her hair by one of the inn's windows. She, wo she wove a red ribbon through her raven braids as she watched the east road, and then she saw him, silhouetted against the moonlight, the highwayman. Bess stood up from her three-legged stool and slipped through the inn toward the kitchen. The snores of her father's guests whisked past her as she moved. An old merchant dreamed of a large mansion filled with precious and amazing things until a dragon burst from the ground and burned the whole thing down. He screamed, thrashed, and rolled off the bed. The yell gave Bess a moment's pause, and then she continued on her way. Left, right, right, and then down a short staircase, and finally she was greeted by the lingering aroma of the day's dinner. I'll just grab half a loaf this time, she thought. I don't want Father getting suspicious again. She grabbed a chunk of bread and turned to leave. She paused. A slab of brown meat and a few apples sat on the central table. A little meat wouldn't hurt either. He'll never notice. In the end, she acquired a whole loaf, five slices of roast, three green apples, she left the bruised ones in the kitchen, and a fresh wineskin. The hallways back to the window seemed to stretch on forever as Bess hastened back with her precious cargo. As she neared her room, she peeked through the keyhole of her father's door. Fresh sheets stretched across his empty bed. He must have fallen asleep at the front, hoping for more guests to arrive. She grinned, knowing that she would not have to whisper tonight. From the top of the hill, it took Wesley ten minutes to reach the inn at a normal pace, but only three at full gallop. Bess made it back in time to tighten her braids, adjust the bow in her hair, and splash a little water on her face. Her heart fluttered as she saw him ride into the courtyard. The click-clack of the stallion's hooves on the stone landed like music on her ears. The highwayman halted the horse a few yards from the window and dismounted. At each step he took, Bess's heart thudded against her chest. A smile spread across each of their faces as they embraced. My love, Wesley whispered, I have missed you with all my heart. I have missed you as well, she said. He placed his hand at the base of her slender neck, leaned her head back and kissed her. Their lips parted and he reached into his coat. I brought a gift for you. I accidentally broke the chain that goes with it, but we'll fix that. He pulled out the pendant he acquired from Duchess Guinevere. It glittered and danced in the candlelight while it swung from a thin string in Wesley's hand. The pendant held a fiery ruby at the center of a seven-pointed star. Bess let out a gasp and quickly wrapped the thread around her neck. 
Thank you, she stammered. It's beautiful. And that is the sample. Okay. So the rest of the story, just to kind of give you an idea of what happens, the lover's part, and then Tim, the ostler, goes to visit the guards garrisoned in the village and essentially rats out the highwaymen. Uh, then some army guys, some soldiers come and they wait at the <laughs> inn uh, to ambush the highwaymen. They tie up Bess while they are there, um, but left a musket within reach. And she kills herself to warn um, to warn the highwaymen of the ambush. And of course he comes anyway, fearing for her safety. And he is killed uh, in the process. And their two ghosts uh, meet and, uh, and, and hang out, (laughs) (laughs) which is the technical term. So um, this is, for me, this is was really cool. Uh, I think that it's a cool idea to you know to adapt a poem uh, into a short story. Um, I agree. And this is this is a perennial classic. I, I think we can say like I remember it's one of the few poems I remember reading in high school. Um, it was Mrs. Shields' English class. <laughs> A few years ago, um, and it's where I first learned about um, figurative language, metaphors and similes, and you know, because it's such a great example of that. It's full of such uh, colorful descriptions. Um, so, if you haven't checked it out, then I think it's a good idea to go and check and read that. It's "The Highwayman" by Alfred Noyes. Um, yeah, I've never been a big poetry guy, but uh, when we got this submission, I, I went and found it online and I read it. And this one was actually actually a lot of fun. I, I, I could uh, I don't know if it was the subject matter or what, but just the, the way it was told, it was very it was it was it was more of what I would consider a story than mm-hmm. a poem, even though it is lyrical and, you know, it has all the poetry tags to it. It was definitely worth checking out for anybody, I think. Yeah, and isn't that interesting because the poems that do stand out tend to be the ones that are narrative rather than Absolutely. the ones that are just, you know. Absolutely. So some of us are deeply attracted attracted to stories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think How most of us probably. Fiction, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... So if I were going to um, make a suggestion, you know, one suggestion for this author, I would really focus in on genre. So we're, um, you know, on the right, on the continuum of story structure between macro and micro. This is about as macro as you can get. And we've been, the last few episodes have been a little granular you know we've gotten real down to the the level beat level um right as i said but but this is the big picture and it's so important that we nail this down um and it's useful when you are starting you know when you're just planning to write your story which of course for you know NaNoWriMo's coming up it's right around the corner so you'll want to you know you you want to have a 
genre, your genre nailed down before you start. And the reason you want to do that, I liken it to, you know, right, if you're going on a trip, you want to know your destination. And the genre is, it's like settling on a continent, right? The, the, yes. Where do you want to visit? Okay, right. I'm, I'm going to Africa this time. All right, cool. That narrows it down. <laughs> right. Not a lot, but it's an important. And you've got a pretty good idea what to expect. Like if you want to go somewhere warm and flat, you go to the savannah in Africa. If you want to go somewhere cold, you go to Antarctica or Alaska, you know. You're sort of yeah. setting up expectations by choosing these these specifics about your story or your travel plans as the metaphor goes. Yeah, that's that's an excellent extension of the metaphor, Chuck. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, okay, and so it doesn't just narrow down the narrow you down to a continent, right? As Chuck said, we it gives you a wide range of information. And so in the in the story grid methodology Right. It'll give you obligatory scenes and conventions. You could call them tropes. You could call them reader expectations. These are the points that, that, you know, the things that need to be included in your story for a reader of, for example, a crime story needs to feel to have a satisfying reading experience. It's not the only thing, but it's a big thing. So you also get story values, the core emotion, you get objects of desire for the protagonist and antagonist, um, and you get actually get a draft of your controlling idea or theme, all just from choosing your genre. So it's really powerful choice. Um, and, you know, you, you kind of want to know those things for your story. Um, well, absolutely, yeah. Um, they're important. Yeah. And knowing uh, them in advance is useful because you know where you're trying to go. And then knowing them after you've written your first draft is important because then you're ticking off boxes of form, not formula. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, many like years and years ago, back when I was doing the, the submission rejection dance in the eighties and nineties, I sent a short story to Marion Zimmer Bradley's uh, fantasy magazine. And, uh, you know, I waited the requisite time and I got the re form rejection letter back. And, you know, this doesn't fit our needs at this time. But uh, someone had written notes in the margins of the letter explaining to me why the, uh, the story had been rejected specifically, which is was rare even then. And um, beneath the notes were little initials mzb which you know that immediately became my favorite rejection letter of all time because marion zimmer bradley was yeah exactly <laughs> but the reason the story got rejected was she said that it was strong writing but it wasn't evident that it was a fantasy story within the first three or four paragraphs mm -hmm. and i think that this story suffers from the same same uh, mistake because, you know, we read five pages of it, but at no point in there did I get any feeling that there was fantasy to it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, when I started reading it, even though it was submitted as a fantasy story, I thought I was just reading like a period adventure piece, mm -hmm. you know, about, you know, like Zorro in, in you know, 12th century France or whatever. Mm -hmm. So 
I think that if you're going to write a fantasy or if you're going to write a specific genre, that needs to be relevant very, very soon in the manuscript, whether it's book or short story, so that your reader knows exactly what to expect. Because if someone came to this story expecting to read a period adventure piece and then 10 pages in, suddenly there's a troll under a bridge or something, you're going to alienate a reader because they don't want trolls under bridges. They want highwaymen sticking it to the king or whatever. So I think it's really important to let the readers know up front what kind of story you're telling. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I was, um, you know, I mentioned that I had, I come up with this new way of kind of talking about the conventions or tropes or reader expectations that go along with the genre. And um, just yesterday, my friend Ann Holly, who's um, she was on the podcast a, a few weeks ago. She and I were talking about obligatory scenes and conventions. And she said, you know, you can leave them out, but you won't be within the tradition of the genre. Right. And that got me to thinking about an interview I heard with David Mitchell, who wrote um, – Ah, the bone clocks. But before that, the one that's most famous is Cloud Atlas. And yeah. he said that, or there, there was this interview and the, the interviewer asked him, what books are your books in conversation with? Uh, which is an, like, wow, that's a really awesome question. Mm. Um, but that whole like this my conversation with Anne and that conversation kind of mashed together in you know connected in my brain and and I realized that if you want your story to be included in the conversation within a genre you know the conversation that's going on within a genre then you have to choose the channel, that right. genre's channel. If you yeah. choose a different channel, you can go choose a different channel. And, you know, and some people may follow you. But if you want to be involved in the particular conversation that's happening within, for example, the thriller genre or the crime story genre, then you've got to hit those obligatory scenes and conventions. Absolutely. Romances usually have to have the happily ever after. Mysteries have to have a body drop in the first chapter or two. I mean, that's, you know, yeah. if that if a person comes looking for that kind of story, it's exactly like you said, that's the conversation they want to be in. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's their reading bubble and they want to live in there. So, you, yeah, I think the, the obligatory scenes to genre, I think, are very are very important, but I also think it's fun to try and find new ways to deliver those scenes. Yeah. You yeah. know, uh, especially in like the crime genre. If you, if you watch any TV at all, you'll see all these police procedurals and stuff and they mm -hmm. come up with all these new and interesting ways that people get murdered, right. <laughs> you know, and it's like, okay. <laughs> Some are more realistic than others. Than others. Exactly. But you know what? If, if you want too much realism, read a textbook. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. fictions for fun. Come on. Suspension <laughs> of disbelief. Exactly. Right. So, Reality is overrated. Yeah. So I would say no judgment, right? If you don't oh, no. want to be in on the conversation that's happening within a genre, you know, you can go start your, you know, again, no judgment. Right. But 
if you want, you know, if you want in on it, and I think most people do, they want their stories to contribute to that conversation, then sure. you gotta, you know, you gotta be on that channel. And um, let's see what I was gonna uh, I'll say a little more about the conversation later. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm bouncing around a little here. But okay. So when when we're talking about you know like the the genre and um like and all the things that come with it, the obligatory scenes and conventions and the core emotion and the core value and all of that like I said I'm, I mentioned we were, you know, writing back and forth in the Google Doc, and yeah. I said genre correlates to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and you said, how so? And yeah. so I, I – this and this is straight from uh, Sean Coyne's brain. Uh, this, I cannot take credit for this. But if you look at the 12 major, you know, like 12 main genres, they – fit in with one of Maslow's um, categories. And so you have, and, and it turns on the, like, what's the value that is going on and, um, within the story, like the core value, the core change that happens within the story relates to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So in action stories, right, those are the most primal stories. Those are life, right. death, right? And so those deal with physiological needs. Then you have um, safety is the next uh, of Maslow's categories. And you have stories, you have crime stories that deal with justice and injustice. You have war stories that deal with justice just and unjust wars you have an honor and disgrace you have horror stories interestingly enough because you because they turn on the life death value but they go to the point of damnation or a fate worse than death yeah. and at westerns you have you know individual society anyway i'll share all of that you know the yeah, I see the where you're going with that. And, and I, I, I never heard that before, but I, I see where you're going with it. I, I think that, um, you know, if, if you just boil down genre to like it's just its most basic essence, this this is absolutely correct. But I also think that um, if you really want to flesh out a story, there needs to be some overlap between these. Like you could have the the life, death, physiological needs is the primary focus of a of a say an action book, but you could also have a subplot that is the love interest or the yes. you know that sort of thing. Yes. So absolutely, but I, I definitely I definitely see where Coin's going with this. That's uh, that's interesting. I never looked at it that way before. I'm so and I'm so glad you mentioned that because you right yeah you, stories that are uh, complex and have multiple values going on you know mm -hmm. right we're in any given day we're dealing with multiple levels of oh, maslow's Lord. hierarchy of needs um, <laughs> like i said reality is overrated <laughs> right <laughs> seriously uh, and so you know it's not like we're only in a love story or we're only in a um an action story 
Exactly. Yeah. I mean, not true action, but I don't know. The highways around Austin sometimes. I've had a few days. Like an action Back story. in my 20s, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So life is more complex. And to kind of, you know, to represent life in art, yes, you need those. Um, and it and it helps. Now, within a short story, you can't add too much, right? You, no, you know, especially a short short. Um, you. Though I will say one. this writer did a good job of blending the action with the romance throughout the story. It's this this whole story really has a Roman, Romeo and Juliet kind of feel to it, it by the end. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he he did a good job of putting the highwayman's you know highwaymanish action in the front there, and then he shows his genuine the genuine affection between him and Bess. I mean, I, I think this writer did a really good job of blending those two. Yeah, um, and I would say so. The important thing about that is you can have multiple things, but you have to have one global story. Yes. Whatever, you know, whatever you choose, um, you can add subplots about other things, but you need one global story that is the, you know, it's the story's spine or it's the, you know, it's the thread that ties everything together um, so that, you know, that is a complete story. And then you yeah. have elements of the, you know, of other genres woven in. And, you know, since we're talking about genre, I wanted to mention, and you've talked about this on your podcast, is that, I did. you know, um, fantasy, science fiction, and steampunk, they don't, they don't fit into the, you know, the, the 12 main genres. Um, yeah. And it's because... They are, oh, yeah, I need to get links for those. Um, basically, when you're talking about fantasy or science fiction, you're talking about where your story falls on the scale of reality to fantasy, right? Is R it real right. or is it not real? And could it happen or could this never really happen? And then, of course, there's also elements of setting and that kind of thing. Sure. Um, and there are tropes that go with fantasy and science fiction, to be sure. Space opera, which Chuck writes, <laughs> um, you know, there are tropes and conventions that go with those types of stories, but they're a little more flexible, right? And they have they they have a lot to do with like the style and yeah. of a particular time, and. They also focus right on category, which is, you know, where do you shelf your book, shelf exactly. your book in the bookstore or the library. And so, um, so those are, you know, they are important, but you want to, again, you want to nail down the genre. That's your first thing. Yeah. It's, um, I, I, I break, I like to think that fiction comes in three flavors, realistic fiction, fantasy fiction, and science fiction. And yeah. all of those, though, are, well, not so much realistic fiction, but fantasy fiction and science fiction, even as you break that down further into the different genres beneath those larger umbrellas, it's all a sliding scale. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, technically, if you look at someone like um, 
uh, the guy who wrote Jurassic Park. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. That's science fiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're cloning dinosaurs. They're doing something that's not possible with our modern scientific techniques. So he has taken science, extrapolated it just a little bit, and written a story about it. Mm-hmm. But because it doesn't fall within the realm of possibility, it is technically science fiction. Mm-hmm. So from a writer's standpoint, yeah, it's science fiction, thriller, or whatever. But on a bookstore shelf, they probably wouldn't put it there. It's mm-hmm. From a writer's standpoint, it's a sliding scale. But from a bookselling standpoint, you need to be able to hand it to a bookseller and say, this is where this goes. Right. And still provide a satisfying read for your expected reader. So, mm-hmm. again, each of those is a sliding scale, and you can make them as fantastic or as realistic as you choose to, depending on the story you're trying to tell. So, yeah. it's again, the rules are <laughs> the only thing a writer has to do is write. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you're most right. Yeah. So, you made an important point earlier about you know, there's form, but we need to innovate, right? Yeah. There, there are only six or seven stories, you know, actual stories that are, that are told. Uh, this was um, Kurt Vonnegut's proposed PhD right. dissertation um, yes. at the University of Chicago. And they said, no, no, we don't agree. Get out of here. Um, and um, it was proved you know, once we had computers. Yeah, once you had time enough. to actually really think about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, and if you think about it, you, you know, you you can see the same movements. So given that there are these 12 genres and they have obligatory scenes and conventions and we have, you know, six or seven story shapes that, that you tend to see that people um, can process – and that people tend to tell, how do you innovate? You know, or if you're taking an idea from, say, a poem or somebody else's story, you know, an element of that or an historical event, you know, how do you innovate and, and work on adapting that for, you know, to tell the story that you want to tell? And the... For me, I kind of, you know, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, well, you want to look at whose story are you trying to tell, right? Who's the part, who's the protagonist and what does that character want and need? Right. And then, you know, and what's the force of antagonism and, you know, and what, you know, like, what do you want to say about the interaction between a protagonist like this? And this particular force of antagonism. And then specific to adaptation, you you want to think about like what elements do you want to keep? Like what aspects lend themselves? You know, what aspects can go from poetry to prose? And you, um, if you know the poem pretty well, you probably like some of the lines probably kind of echoed back across the years. And it's a beautiful way to pull the story in or the poem and the, you know, the lovely language that like if you read, a, you know, if you read a full short story written that way, um, it, it would be difficult to read, I think. 
um, you know, in, in a shorter poem, a shorter narrative poem that works. But, you know, you wouldn't necessarily want to do a whole short story or novella or novel that way. Yeah, it would get heavy. It would get heavy quick from a prose standpoint. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think and especially modern modern readers, uh, you know, everybody kind of wants it quick and fast these days. You know, they I mean, yeah, there are still people who like the big, long, epic stories. But even those, they want the language to be kind of direct and easily understood, mm-hmm. you know, accessible, not, yes, very accessible. They don't want a lot of, of lyricism for the sake of lyricism. You know, it's just, um, just tell them the story, you know, you don't have to get too flowery about it, but I mean mm-hmm. there, but you know, you talk about innovation, there are always those people who step up and sort of change that, mm-hmm. you know, the, the market has been showing forever and ever that people want straightforward stories. And then Patrick Rothfuss shows up with some of the most beautiful prose you'll ever read. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like it takes off and, and you're like, OK, well, maybe not. You know, that's that's innovation. I think also innovation comes from, like you said, there's only like the six basic DNAs for a story. But you can innovate in the ways those are told as far as the settings and the time they're written. I think one of the reasons that Ready Player One did so well mm-hmm. is because it was written now when people my age are kind of nostalgic for all the things in the 80s. You know, the way the world is now. And then he wrote it about and there's all these different cultural references to when I was young. Well, that was very innovative. I mean, it's essentially a cyberpunk story. Mm-hmm. But he told it in such a way that it that there's a lot of people out there, both my age and younger, who can relate to it because there's a big video game. And then there's references to all these things I remember from my youth. And, you know, so innovation is it's almost impossible to say this is how you innovate because it's it's like a lightning strike. It just kind of you see something and think, hey, I could do it this way and it'd be cool. And it either works or it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think. It's also like we have, right, we have the six, the six, as you said, story DNAs. And then we have the, you you have genre with all of its form, right? And then there's what you bring to it, your exactly. special sauce, if you will. And I think that's where innovation comes into play. That That is, that is really where a writer is tied to his, to his craft is mm-hmm. how he or she does it. Yeah. Yeah. And that can come across in a lot of different ways. Um, And it's why, for example, people like to watch Quentin Tarantino movies. Exactly. Great example. Or read Patrick Rothfuss, you know, Mm -hmm. like there's a style, there's something special that a particular artist brings to that story. And yet, and that's something that no one else can do. And so you want to you don't want to take the first or the second or even the third or fourth or fifth draft, you know, or iteration of an idea or a scene or story, you know, you want to keep digging to find like, what is it you really want to say? Because you're just kind of regurgitating stuff in the beginning, things that you've heard, things that you've read, things that, you know, um, be, you know, so you want to keep, you know, keep digging down. How can I make this stronger and unexpected but familiar? 
Right. Well, I mean, that, and that's going to be true, you know, depending on what what you're trying to write. I mean, mm-hmm. if, you, if you're writing really plot heavy, you know, I just if you're writing a book for somebody who just wants to, you know, like read lots of butt kicking and things blowing up and stuff like that, then, you know, you have to find new ways to make that entertaining. And for instance, John Wick. OK, mm-hmm. I don't think anybody who saw those movies would disagree that that is really just a straight up action movie. There's mm-hmm. the plot is very simple and it's just John Wick running around killing everybody. But the thing that makes that unique is that setting. Okay, the writer came up with this setting where there's this like hidden world of criminals that have their own currency and their own economy and they pay for everything with gold coins and there's an overarching organization that hides what they do from the regular world, you know, and they can they can get away with all this horrible stuff because they've got this secret society kind of thing set up. So John Wick can run around and kill whole nightclubs full of people and you never hear about it on the news, you know. Mm-hmm. So the setting is is what made that story unique and what made the the fact that it's really at its bare bones just a one long fight scene it made it approachable because you look at that and you go wow that's cool and that was that was what was innovative about that you know so it's it's always going to be something that comes from that particular writer's mind Mm -hmm. and uh you know sometimes it's simple sometimes it's like you're saying you have to dig deep and find that 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 deeper truth to a story so it's uh yeah it's you just you just gotta trust yourself i think Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i wanted to mention in terms of um innovating and and adaptation that the a few years ago aj hartley and david hewson adapted macbeth shakespeare's play um Mm -hmm. for they novelized it for audio and it was excellent. Um, uh, Alan Cumming did the did the narration for the story, which was it wow. Was, yeah, it was like it's and it's really good. I mean, they took that you know the iambic pentameter play and turned it into a thriller, right? And, and it was amazing. So the sky's the limit. You're you know like your creativity and your ability to you know to just keep kind of grinding on it um until you find your special message way right. of telling the story way of looking at life you know that it's in there yeah you, you got to put it. your 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 specific polish on it you know your brush stroke and that's 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 ultimately, and I guess you know, in a lot of ways, that can come down to something as as as, as uh, nuanced as just your voice. You know, you could mm-hmm. tell, you know, two writers with two different voices are going to tell the exact same story in two entirely different re- sounding ways. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's it, it it's hard to point at this one thing and say this is how you do it. You know, because right. because everybody's going to have their own take. Yeah, for sure. Did you want to mention anything else? Um, well, um, uh, I think beyond the genre considerations, uh, I think the story, it just, it reads like a standard first draft. I think if I was going to make any more suggestions to the writer, um, 
I, number one, like I said, I would add some some element to it to let people know it's going to be a fantasy more early on. And I, I think I'd like to have seen a little bit more of the when he's describing the the place in the beginning of the story, it's like daylight and all this other stuff. But if you read the poem, it's like nighttime. There's some there's some beautiful lines there describing uh, describing the setting around them. So I I, I think some some just maybe a phrase or two that sort of ties it a little tighter to the poem. Uh, if it's intended to be some kind of homage might be a little more intriguing, but you know, that's not necessarily something that would have to be there, mm-hmm. but I did, I did like the imagery in the, in the poem a lot. So I thought maybe uh, borrow from that it would enrich the story just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Something to consider for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, I just happen to have an editorial mission. Do you? I know. So surprising. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Uh, And this one's called Identify Your Genre. It sounds very straightforward, but I'm going to take you on a little bit of a twisty. That doesn't mean it's easy. (laughs) For sure. Um, And this is, I'm going to take you on a bit of a, a twisty, moonlit night road through the countryside okay Okay. so i want you to forget for now what you know about the genre for your current work in progress and think back to when you first came up with the idea for this story what was the first spark of inspiration what what pulled you in to that particular story character situation you know, what is it that fascinates you about it? Or think about it this way. What is it that you want to say about the world through that story? And just an aside about entertainment, because that comes up occasionally is that, well, you know, I just want to entertain people. Absolutely. Stories are entertaining, but they also present prescriptive and cautionary tales about the world. When we read stories, we get to test out scenarios. The it's I I like to say it's the original virtual reality. I like that. That's good. <laughs> right? You're not risking anything in right. real life when you are going through those motions. And when a writer can make you experience the emotions and kind of try that out, you you gain some of that experience. And and we evoke emotions, right, that we want to feel or process. Mm-hmm. We're drawn to certain types of books, certain genres for a reason. And that's often because they explore what we need or want and especially what we're afraid of. So if this is true of reading, then imagine what you get when you work on your story and how you get to know yourself and how you are in the world through that process. So we read and write stories to entertain, but I never want you to lose sight of the fact that we also read and write them to make sense of the world and where we fit in it. So with all of that in mind, do some free writing if you're not sure about you know, what that initial spark, that initial inspiration was for your story, if you can't remember it. Why do you want to write this story? You could write any story, 
right? But what's, what is it about this story? So set a timer for 10 minutes and write without stopping or editing. I like to write, you know, in a notebook with a pen when I'm doing this kind of writing, but you know, you do whatever works for you and write about your story and what compels you to write it. And when you, when you're done, kind of look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs and I'll have that, you can check that out on the, in the show notes if you, if you need easy access to that. But, you know, which one, which one of those needs most, you know, closest resembles your why or your inspiration for the story? And what are the genres connected with that need? And I'll have that in the show notes as well. Now, chances are this exploration will point to the global genre of the story you want to tell. And then I want you to check your answer by reading or watching masterworks in the genre. And I'll have some suggestions for those as well. But basically, you want to study the genre. What goes into it? What are the elements? What, what do I need to have in my book to be part of that conversation? So get a good feel for it. And if you, you know, if you struggle with this, then I want you to, you know, I actually want you to reach out to me. Send me a note at hello at writership.com and I'll do my best to kind of point you in the right direction with that. You know, there are so many obstacles that stand between you and your goal of finishing, you know, writing, finishing, and publishing a great story and nailing down the genre will help you clear whole categories of these obstacles and it can be your roadmap for the journey. So it's really important, and I want you to do this. Okay, enough of that. Off my soapbox. <laughs> a reminder that you can go, um, you can find the editorial missions in the show notes at writership.com episodes, and you can sign up there to get the editorial missions delivered right to your inbox. I have one additional quick announcement as we wrap things up. The amazing Liz has prepared a short anonymous questionnaire to help us find out a little bit more about where you are in your writing journey and how I can better serve you. So if you're up for that, you can find the questionnaire at writership.com slash tell me. Yeah, folks, remember, the podcast is sponsored by Jim Kukul from the Author Marketing Club, and Jim just launched his new service for authors called Happy Book Reviews. And we all know that books with more high-quality reviews sell more copies. So happybookreviews.com is a service where Jim hopes to make you and your book happy with reviews. Check out the options at www.happybookreviews.com because nobody likes a sad book. You can make your book happy with reviews. Yes. All right. And Jim Kukul and the awesome author marketing club cover hosting and technical support for the show but our patreon crew supports our time in preparing and recording and and doing all that sort of stuff so we have i've mentioned recently a new reward for the quartermasters level and that is the writership podcast book club and as i said it's not any it's not just any book club each month we'll choose a book from your suggestions, and I'll read and analyze it the way I would for a story grid diagnostic. And then we'll discuss it in a recorded call. This month, we're reading Brothers Ruin, the first in the Industrial Magic series by Emma Newman. That's 
what we believe is an action story. So if you want to find out more information about that or other ways to support the podcast through Patreon, visit patreon.com slash writership. If you enjoy the show and want to show your support in other ways, please leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and tell your writing buddies about us. If you want to have your five pages reviewed, please visit writership.com slash submissions. And recently someone um, said, hey, you've been kind of heavy on monsters and stuff lately. Can we get something that's a little different? It's October. And I said, it is, yeah, <laughs> it is nearly Halloween. But, but yes, we do get a lot of those. So if there is a type of story that you want to see on the podcast, then send it in. <laughs> You know, and encourage your writing friends to do so as well. Um, and uh, and along those lines, I want to say, right, it's incredibly brave. The people who send their submissions are so, so grateful that you take the leap of faith with us. And um, I'm just, it floors me all the, when I really think about it, what a, what a brave act it is to share your work not knowing what we're going to say um so it's really amazing and brave um and go ahead and do it because it'll be good for you in lots of different ways so if you want to have your five pages reviewed you can visit writership.com submissions so thanks so much to chuck for joining me today remember it has to been a genuine pleasure leslie <laughs> Ah, for me too. If you want to catch up with Chuck, you can find him at cstevenmanley.net. And that's Stephen with a V. So that is it for episode 118. We'll see you next time on the Writership Podcast. Ready for Leslie and Clark to help you find the treasure in your manuscript? Submit your pages to writership.org forward slash podcast.